Hello everyone, you're listening to Night's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. On this episode of Night's History Cast, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Jennifer Palmer, an Associate Professor of History at the University of Georgia. She is also this year's Poly Lecture Speaker on Global Affairs, which is an annual event hosted by the Department of History. This year, Polly's lecture marks the 16th installment of the series on global affairs, which has been made possible by the generosity of Bruce and Marianne Polly. Professor Bruce Polly is a professor emeritus of the history department. He taught Austrian history at UCF for 35 years, and his teaching and research focused on anti-Semitism and Nazism. In recognition of his work, he was awarded the Austrian Cross of Honor for Letters and Arts, and last year he received an alumni award from Grinnell College, recognizing him as someone who embodies Grindel's college mission of lifetime learning and service. His generosity and commitment to intellectual pursuits has made this lecture series possible. I will give a brief synopsis of the lecture that Dr. Palmer will be sharing and presenting at this year's Poly Lecture event. Here it goes. Dr. Palmer's lecture addresses the roles race and gender played in property ownership as the economy of the Atlantic world shifted towards plantation capitalism in the late 17th and 18th centuries. Focusing on the French Caribbean, her lecture will explore how three different women of color claimed, and eventually lost, ownership over different types of property, including privilege, land, and their own bodies. But you know what's more interesting than just me reading off the synopsis that everyone could just read off of the flyer that gets promoted around for this lecture series. A podcast with Dr. Palmer herself, which is what this episode will be about. This, The uniqueness of this podcast, however, is that unlike previous podcasts featuring the grand significant events that the Department of History hosts throughout the year here at UCF that are that take place after the, the, the lecture, the recording of this podcast took place before Dr. Palmer gave her lecture. So you're like, wait, how does this, how does that work? So basically, instead of just being a very, and I get into this more in, in the intro of the actual conversation, but instead of just being a very static, one-dimensional preview, kind of like what I just did with the synopsis, I wanted the preview of the poly lecture to be more dynamic. So to make it more dynamic, I thought, okay, let's talk about her first book, and what she's currently working on, and how the poly lecture is sort of the connective tissue between the two, um, not only in their similarities, but also in their differences. That way, this podcast is a little more dynamic, like I said, more more enriching, more enjoyable to listen than rather just than rather me just saying, okay, what can we expect from your lecture? So that's the the structure of this podcast. So enough of me talking. This is a very long intro, uh, longer than usual. Um, cue that music. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Jennifer Palmer, an associate professor of history at the University of Georgia. Her research focuses on early modern France, the Atlantic world, and the Caribbean. She is also this year's guest speaker for the Poly Lecture on Global Affairs, hosted annually by the UCF Department of History. Thank you, Dr. Palmer, for joining me today on the podcast. How are you doing? Thanks, Sebastian. I'm delighted to be here with you on this beautiful day in sunny central Florida. So yes. thanks for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. 
So what I was telling you off mic, um, how usually this goes is that I attend your lecture presentation, take intensive notes on the presentation, go home, take a day or days leading up to the podcast to analyze the notes I took and then use them as the basis of my questions. Then we have a podcast conversation about the lecture. But because of, you know, scheduling conflicts, we are doing the podcast before the lecture you'll be giving. So but like I told you, I'm actually excited to do it this new way um, and try it out with you. So I researched your previous work and how this podcast will go so for our listeners to better understand. I'll be asking you questions about your previous works, what you currently are working on now, and how the poly lecture that you'll be giving on Monday serves as that connective tissue of the two, ultimately providing a, a dynamic preview of your lecture rather than a static one-dimensional, oh, what's your presentation going to be about sort of thing. So sounds good? Sounds great. Awesome. All right. So my first question. Your first book, Intimate Bonds, Family and Slavery in the French Atlantic, which was published in 2016, explores the stories of people who built families and fortunes on both sides of the French Atlantic. The metropolis being France itself, specifically the port city of La Rochelle, and the colony, specifically Port-au-Prince, Saint-Domingue in the Caribbean. Why did you decide to center the phenomenon of slavery in the French colonial empire, this macro-history subject, with the micro-interpersonal histories of families, the household, and individuals? I think to answer that question, I need to take you back to my years as a graduate student, because this first book was based on my dissertation. And so when I was a graduate student, I was thinking about what I wanted to research, and I knew that I wanted to research uh, gender in 18th century France. And I wanted to do that because I knew that that was a really important time and a really important place for the development and emergence of current ideas about gender roles and gender. And so I knew I wanted to do that. I had also always been interested in race as a category, but it had not really occurred to me that I could talk about race in the context of 18th century France until I read a book um, called There Are No Slaves in France by Sue Peabody. And she talks about, well, slaves in France and, uh, and the practice of slavery in France. And it just really caught my interest. And so because of that, I decided that I wanted to look for further evidence of slavery and enslaved people who lived in France. And so when I set off to do my research for my dissertation, that's what I set off to do, to look for enslaved people who lived in France. And I hoped to find traces of their communities and their practices. Um, But what I found instead was the no surprise, because we know, right, that people who are on the top of the social scale are the ones who tend to leave records that make it into archives. And people on the bottom of the social scale, their records tend to be effaced. And so I found instead records of people who owned enslaved people, of merchants, wealthy merchants, and plantation owners who lived in France, but who were really oriented economically and culturally towards the Caribbean, specifically towards Saint-Domingue, which was a sugar powerhouse and really the economic engine of France and its empire at that point. And so the people who I was finding in La Rochelle an Atlantic port city, were really focused on Saint-Domingue, which is now Haiti. And it had not really 
that was not really my plan to study Saint-Domingue. But because the people who I was interested in were so focused there, I focused my research there too. And so that's how I came to that element of the project. Um, and in terms of connecting the macro and the micro, I also was really interested in families and personal relationships. And one of the things that I try to do in my work is tell the stories of people who whose stories are often forgotten or whose stories are often left out of the historical record. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you can find traces. And so I really worked to find the traces and pull out as much as I could from these traces that are marginalized in the context of the archives, but to try to to really center those traces and see what happened when I did. And so what I found was a really rich uh, history and rich stories, especially of interracial families, of people who um, had, had, you know, some members of the family were white, some were black, some were mixed race, um, and how that experience of being part of an interracial family changed their ideas about what race meant and what colonialism meant. Kind of piggybacking off that answer, what was the significance of juxtaposing or comparing La Rochelle and Port Al Prince, both port cities, in this broader analysis of slavery in the French colonial empire? Yeah, I chose La Rochelle for several reasons, one of which is it's a beautiful city and a wonderful place to do research. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Um, But also it was an interesting and kind of anomalous place, legally speaking. Um, France, in France, in in the old regime, so before the French Revolution, the laws were really, really complicated. And there was truly a legal patchwork and different laws applied different places. And so because of the unique history of La Rochelle, which was heavenly Protestant during the wars of religion. And so the French crown during the wars of religion really thought that they needed to bring it to heel and uh, exert their authority there. And so because of this old history, La Rochelle operated under the same legal system as Paris. And it was the only major Uh, port town that did. And um, the significance of that is there were a number of edicts, royal edicts, that regulated slavery in France. And the legal system in Paris, it was called the parliament, which is kind of confusing because it's not like an elected body or a legislative body. It actually is a a court. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the parliament in Paris uh, did not register these laws about slavery. And so the laws regulating slavery did not technically apply in Paris and the area under its jurisdiction, which included La Rochelle. So that's that's kind of a very long answer to why La Rochelle, because of this legal particularity. Don't worry, I like long answers. <laughs> that's the beauty of the podcast forum. And also the beauty of history as a discipline. We get to see the complexity uh, and really think about what that complexity means. Exactly, 100%. To what extent did the grand influx of people from the colony to La Rochelle during the 18th century change the social and also racial dynamics of the city of La Rochelle and even conversely the colony? 
So thinking about the people who came to La Rochelle from the Caribbean, specifically from Saint-Domingue, now Haiti, there weren't really that many. There were enslaved people who were brought or free people of color who were brought or more rarely came on their own volition. But we're talking about hundreds, not thousands. And so the demographics of the city would not change dramatically. However, one of the things that it meant was that in La Rochelle, in the city of La Rochelle, seeing people of color would have been familiar. I mean, maybe still slightly unusual in a popul- in a city of about 20,000 people, you know, to have two or 300 people of color. It still might have been slightly unusual, but it would have been a fairly familiar sight and so part of the fabric of the city. We also see that people of color who came married white people in France, had families with white people in France, and really often did assimilate. And this was especially true among people who were of kind of a lower social status. Um, among a higher social status, it's, it was rarer. Uh, and in fact, I did not find examples of people who were of a higher social status who were free people of color who married whites. Um, and so the people who were of a higher social status often were the children of white plantation owners and women of color who often at one point had been there who had been enslaved by them. And yet in the French empire, it was fairly common for these white men to take responsibility for their children, at least certain of their children. And it was even almost expected at some point that they do this, that they take care of their children, that they provide for their children. And so it was fairly common for white men to give their free children of color freedom to acknowledge their paternity, uh, which of course they didn't have to do, but they but they often did, um, and to to transfer resources to them, and so that could include money, it could include enslaved people, it could include land. Um, for daughters, it would often include providing a dowry. It might include paying for their education, and so these were things that white men often did for their free children of color. Not always, but often. And yet, when some of these uh, children were brought to France, I talk about one case in this book of the Florio family. Um, the daughters were brought to France by their father along with, their, with, with his sons. And the daughters never marry. And in Saint-Domingue, I think they would have been desirable mar- marriage partners because they were children of a rich plantation owner. He had already indicated that he was willing to support them. He probably would have been willing to provide a dowry. And so um, this would have been attractive either to a white man who was coming in and maybe hoping to get a foothold in the colonies or to a free man of color. And yet in France, they never got married. It could have been a choice. I mean, maybe they didn't want to get married, um, but it also could have been that they couldn't find anyone to marry them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there we kind of see maybe the development and the emergence of kind of a racial thinking that has a class element too, um, where maybe people who are French and white and and wealthy um, maybe are hesitant to marry free, free people of color. Right. Being that it's in the main title of your book, how crucial and influential was the theme of intimacy, uh, not only in the institution of slavery in the French colonial empire, but in this comprehensive approach you took in researching this historiography. Intimacy can have a lot of meanings. Right. 
But when people think about it in the context of slavery, they often think about sexual relations between uh, white men and women of color. One of the things that I wanted to do in this book was disrupt that kind of automatic equation Mm -hmm. and think about intimacy more broadly. And so um, I think that intimacy across racial lines in this colonial context of plantation slavery they're very often, it's very often unequal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are there is a variety of ways that intimacy can unfold. And so we can certainly think about sexual relationships, but we also could think about the relationships between parents and children, mm-hmm. uh, the relationships between men of different races who work alongside each other, the relationship between uh, women of different races who work alongside each other, uh, business relationships where people are, um, you know, buying and selling things from each other, the relationships between servants and masters, where it still is an unequal relationship, but a very, very intimate one in that you really live alongside people, you know everything about them, you, you know, know what they like, you know what they don't like, you know Mm -hmm. what they like to eat, you know what they're the state of their clothes after, you know, a day or a month or whatever. And so I wanted to explore a broader range of types of intimacy in a colonial and interracial context to see what we could learn. Staying in the realm of underlying themes present in your book, what were some other themes you found you found integral in this story of family and slavery in the French Atlantic? Well, one of the themes that was really important to me is gender um, and thinking about how gender also shapes our understanding of race and colonialism. Um, One of the case studies that I look at in that book is uh, about the marriage of the Regno de Beaumont family. And so this is a couple, a white French couple, they get married in France. And pretty much just a few years after they get married, the husband leaves and never returns. And so he's gone. He lives in Saint-Domingue for 35 years until his death. Um, And for the most part, they don't see each other again. And so a couple things, this has a couple of different effects. First of all, the husband has a second family with a woman of color. And so he has mixed race children. Uh, When he dies, he leaves all his property to them. But also on the other side of the ocean, the wife remains in charge of running the couple's transatlantic business. Um, And so he grows indigo. She arranges for its shipment and its sale. Um, She deals with the court cases when a ship that um, that they own part of sinks. She deals with the insurance. And so what we see in this case is that there are the gender roles within the context of marriage change and gender expectations within the context of marriage change. And they seem to know that before they get married because their marriage contract, which was a fairly common practice for people to have a marriage contract before they got married, their marriage contract gives her powers and authority that were unusual for women and that were outside the general bounds of customary law in France. And so um, in this case, what we see is that colonialism is having an impact on how people view marriage and what they think marriage is. Right. That's interesting. I never thought of it like that. But that specific example you gave is interesting. Staying on specific examples, 
besides that one that you just gave and the one you gave two questions ago about the floral fam- family, are there other um, specific case studies that you found particularly interesting or fascinating that you could share with our listeners? Yes. And so another another really interesting case was the case of Neptune and Louise. And so this, these are two free people of color who lived in France who seemed to have brought been brought to France as enslaved people. But after a while, they got their freedom. And so it's not always clear how people get their freedom. Sometimes freedom is on a spectrum. And so uh, there is the very formal legal mode of getting freedom where you have emancipation papers and you go through a correct procedure. But also there are man- many more informal ways of asserting freedom too, including marinage, where enslaved people run away, um, and also including the practice of just simply acting like you're free, right? And so um, it's not clear if Neptune and Louise were legally freed following the correct procedures, or if maybe with the permission of their the people who claimed to own them, maybe they were just acting like they were free and living as if they were free and people acknowledged them as free. It's not clear. But in France, starting in the 1760s, there was there, there was legislation that mandated that people of color, enslaved and free, register with their local government. And so Neptune and Louise did register. And what's interesting to me is what they said. And in particular, Neptune really asserted his freedom and his belonging in French society by emphasizing his masculinity and his masculine gender roles in a way that the French male bureaucrat writing down his statement would understand and probably relate to. Mm-hmm. And so he talked about how he was a husband to Louise, uh, how he acted as a father to a free girl of color who lived with them. And he talked about his labor and his work. And so he really framed his position and his belonging and his freedom in terms of French masculinity. Since it's a necessary and fundamental part of the historical research process and also because i'm curious how and what was the methodological process like for this first project for this first book that you went through so i went to a number of archives in france specifically focusing on archives in la rochelle when you're talking about people though who are generally purposefully left out of archives it is difficult to find traces of them yeah and so sometimes for historical research you have a, a specific body of sources that potentially you can look at mm-hmm. i didn't have any of that if you look in french archives and you're looking by category race is not a category that is cataloged neither is gender and so instead i looked where i thought people might be and just paged through thousands and thousands of of pages of 18th century French manuscripts, um, hoping to find traces of, of them. And I did, but it took a very long time. And it was a little bit by chance. I mean, there were some chance encounters. There were some places where that gave me starting points or gave me leads. And right. so, for example, I just mentioned these this mandatory registration by people of color. And so that's a place that you can start, okay, here is the name of this person, and then work back from and see if you can find their prehistory, um, see if you can find traces of other people that maybe they mention in their records. 
And besides, like, like the, in the archives, were there any other sources you utilized during the process or that was your main go-to? My main focus was on archival sources because when you're talking about the 18th century, that's mostly where you are. However, right. I also looked around the town and thought about the geography of the town um, and where people of color may have lived, for example, uh, where wealthy merchants lived, for example. Uh, and I also, for my dissertation and then for articles after that, I also wrote a lot about paintings because in France in the 18th century, especially the early 18th century, there was kind of a vogue to have portraits painted, especially wealthy aristocratic women have their portraits painted in the company of people of color who were often visually coded as enslaved. So this was another source. From all the elements and themes of from your first book that that you mentioned, so family, gender, race, which ones will you be implementing or that are crucial for your um, poly lecture presentation that you'll be giving on Monday? Yes. So I'm still very much interested in race and gender. And so those are the things that I will be focusing on. Uh, and also telling stories from below, as as we say. Um, and so the stories of people who often aren't told and who aren't necessarily considered historically important. Methodologically, to pick up on your last question, I similarly am looking at sources that are archival sources, but I'm trying to look at them and use them in different ways to pick up what's in the margins, to pick up the traces of people that have haven't been considered to be central. And conversely, so like what are some of the different elements that you'll be bringing in this lecture that that are different from what you researched and what you talked about in your first book? So to connect this with the methodology and thinking about what is it's kind of historical sources that historians normally use. And so for this lecture, the sources that I'm basing it on are generally historical sources that are easily available in archives, particularly the correspondence of ministers, of you know colonial officials, um, laws, and uh, court cases. But I'm trying to use these in new ways to pull out the activities and the importance of free women of color. In particular, I'm talking about two things taxes and land land grants. And so these are things that seem on the surface to really be just bureaucratic, to not have anything to do with race or gender. But I'm trying to look at them in a way that makes race and gender central to how tax exemptions are granted, to how taxes are levied, and to how land can be owned. So staying on that same kind of common thread in these previous two questions, how does the project that you're currently working on, which the title is Possession, Race, Gender, and Property in Atlantic France, influence the lecture that you'll be giving and um, also vice versa? Like how how interconnected are the two? Very interconnected. And so I'm drawing on um, two case studies that I'll talk about in my book. Um, to, to, for the lecture, the case of Madeleine Bairn, who was a free woman of color who lived in Martinique at the end of the 17th and beginning of the 18th century, and Nanon and Artois, who are two free women of color who lived in Guadeloupe 
in the 17th century, the seven or the 18th century, the 1720s is the period that I'm interested in there. And so I'll be using these case studies in the book and in the lecture. Talk to us a little bit more specifically about this current project you're working on. And is it fair to call to call it a sequel to your first book? It certainly is connected. It's not quite a sequel in that all of the people are different. I'm looking at a different source base. I'm looking in some different locations. But thematically, my interests are very much the same. My term, my interests in race and gender and colonialism and empire and power um, and telling the stories of people whose stories need to be told. What can readers, listeners can expect from the second book? Um, so the second book is about ownership and how people can exert ownership in different ways over different types of property, but also how ownership changes over the course of the 18th century in the context of plantation colonialism and how ownership gradually becomes a white patriarchal privilege. And so there were... I'm arguing many different ways of owning, some of which were open to women and free people of color. Um, but over the course of the 18th century, as colonialism got more entrenched and as the colonial administration expanded and as plantation capitalism really took root, these alternative, these many methods uh, were shut off and it became much harder for people to assert ownership of a property. And so I'm looking at the mechanisms by which those avenues for ownership were shut down. And when can we be expecting this second book to come out? Well, it takes a very long time. Yes. You know, um, even when you are, quote unquote, finished with the manuscript, it still takes about two years. Right. So I would anticipate 2025. Let's aim for then. So I know you mentioned earlier a very specific example of the legacy of colonialism with the street names kind of being similar. What other and, and specifically also like in your research and your focuses, what are other legacies of that? colonial empire between the between the two places. Yeah, I think that you're right. The between the two places is key. And there are legacies of colonialism in France and legacies of colonialism in the French Caribbean. And we can certainly see it in Haiti uh, with the economy and the um, deforestation and the, uh, the environmental devastation that has been going on since the 17th century and, and still is having effects. We can see it in the French Caribbean, Martinique and Guadeloupe, which are considered to be parts of France. But we can see it there, too, with the patterns of immigration and the opportunities that are available and the type of training that's available, the type of work that people can engage in. Um, we can still see it there. I think we also see it in France, particularly it's a very interesting kind of legacy because there continues to be a denial of uh, race as a category in French culture and society. Um, and so I think that that, too, is a legacy of colonialism and a pers persistent denial that slavery in France or the French slave trade, for example, was ever an important part of the French economy. Here's your your one dimensional, typical uh, static answer. But what are what are some other fireworks we can be expecting in your your poly lecture? 
Well, I'm trying to connect the case studies that I'm talking about and thinking about taxation and property ownership with how we understand them today. And so look for some images and comments about current politics. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Palmer, those were all the questions I have for you today. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy itinerary here in Orlando um, to sit down and talk to me and do this podcast with me, um, explaining your work and the interconnectedness between your work, your research, and the lecture that you'll be giving, which after this conversation, I'm even more excited to see how it unfolds. Um, so I'll see you then. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sebastian. It's just been a pleasure. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed it. Dr. Palmer was an excellent guest. So shout out to her and her work. There's a lot of upcoming events in the calendar here at UCF, Department of History related and broader UCF, like this research symposium, inter collaborations between departments like the Operacion Pedro Pan event. So I'm giving previews of basically future episodes that will be coming out here on this podcast. So please stay tuned and please subscribe to Knight's History Cast wherever you get your podcast feed. Very exciting time for Knight's History Cast here at UCF Department of History. So thank you all for listening. I very much appreciate it. And I will see you on the next episode. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.